For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hi, this is John Donvan with a podcast this time that is a little bit of a new direction we're trying out at Intelligence Squared U.S. to mix in with our usual lineup. Most of the time, you know, you get a podcast that is a debate. This one is more about debate. We thought we would take a moment to give a zoomed out picture of how debate in Congress works or is supposed to work and to get an insider's perspective on how that's been changing over time. Okay, so here's our jumping off point for this. As many media outlets are reporting, Trump care gives us a way into an important but persistent question about the quality of congressional deliberation with the much-reported fact that when Senate Republicans were having a hard time getting its version of a health care bill hammered out, they went behind closed doors to get most of it done, and they announced that when it was ready, they would allow for 20 hours of full debate on the bill. And then what both the New York Times and the Washington Post noted was, whoa, 20 hours – the bill that became Obamacare back in 2010 got 25 days. That is a paraphrase, but technically it's true. And it could make the GOP side appear to be shrinking away from debate. And debate is a thing that we love here at Intelligence Squared, and we know that you do too. So I reached out to one of our past debaters, former Oklahoma Congressman Mickey Edwards, who right now is directing a program at the Aspen Institute that is designed to foster bipartisan thinking among elected officials. Mickey loves what we do at Intelligence Squared, and he loves the process of seeing ideas pulled apart out in the open and then put back together again. When he debated with us, the motion was the GOP must seize the center or die. He argued in the affirmative. And boy, did he argue. Listen to this. James Madison is my hero. I love Madison, the champion of limited government. But he was also for government. The, the Constitution was not just to put constraints on government, but to empower government to act in a reasonable, rational way as a nation. Ah, rationality. I do like rationality. So that's why I'm going to Mickey to ask his view on what his party is up to in seeming, seeming to duck out on a debate. Mickey Edwards, thanks so much for connecting with us. Sure, John. I'm glad to do it. So, Mickey, um, you're a Republican. You're a conservative. You served 16 years in Congress. Um, you've also debated with us, Intelligence Squared, and you're a good friend of the organization. So thank you very much for that. Um, I, I want to ask you to put into context this numerical comparison that was reported by both the New York Times and the Washington Post, where they were pointing out that the debate on Obamacare back in 2010 was spread out in public over 25 days but the Republican Senate health care bill was scheduled to get only 20 hours. So I want to analyze that with you, but um, not just yet. First, help us out with this. Talk to us about 
what the term debate actually means in the context of Congress. What is a debate when we're talking about senators and representatives? Or maybe what is debate not in that context? Right. I, I think when people think about a debate, they imagine uh, one person debating against another or two against two, and whatever it is, uh, a group of people presenting argument A and, and another group countering with argument B, and then there's an audience, and the audience is listening to both sides and trying to determine, you know, which one they're going to come down with. And that's that's the debate we think about in terms of college or, or things like that. Now, in, in Congress, it's a very different thing. So by the time you actually arrive at the House floor or the Senate floor, you have spent a lot of time thinking about these bills, talking to your colleagues about them, uh, talking to your constituents about them. You pretty well know uh, where you're going to come down. You, you arrive on the House or Senate floor knowing that you are for or against a particular bill. So what actually has happened, what you could, I guess, call a debate, uh, is something that has played out over a period of time where I go to you, John, and I say, you know, this is what I'm trying to do. I know I don't have you on board. What is your concern? Help me figure out you know, how I can address your concerns so I can bring you on board. So it's, it's really more of a process of deliberation where um, you, you come to the floor now ready to cast your vote and to make your – the reason you see it as a debate is most of the people are making an argument to the country. They're, they're mm-hmm. laying their case out to the media, to the voters, uh, so that they have support – and if the debate drags on for a while, hopefully people who listen to you, hear you on television or radio or uh, read about what you've said in the paper, will call their member of Congress and urge them to support you. Uh, that's what you're trying to do. And you're also making a public record. Uh, but it's never the idea that when you are, are having this discussion on the House floor or the Senate floor, that the primary purpose is to change the mind of other representatives or senators. At that, that train's already left the station. That, that process oh, has been going on. So, so that tells us, in a way, we should not really be using the term debate in that common-sense way when we're talking about this process. Well, that's right. I mean, it is, um, you know, I, I, there is very little chance that Mitch McConnell is going to, by his brilliance and wit, uh, persuade Chuck Schumer to support him, and, and vice versa. <laughs> And there are not a lot of people in Congress who just don't have an opinion about major issues. They hear from their constituents, they hear from their colleagues, they have a staff that reads the bills. Uh, and so that's not what they're trying to do. You're right, the debate, it's the deliberative and compromise consensus-seeking process is a much more accurate way to describe you know, the process that you see going on. You're talking about something that is much more push-pull than persuasion. It right. sounds like right, and uh, the, the the debate has taken place in the public, right? So, so on the health care bill right now, the, the there have been arguments put forth, and they've been debated in the New York Times op-ed pages and the Washington Post mm-hmm. op-ed pages, and, and Intelligence Squared, and you know all pe- all these people have weighed in on it, um, trying to, but but the number of undecideds is always very small, uh, and you're you're trying to uh, convince a few people. But but it's not your colleagues in the House or the Senate. They're already sometimes. Let me be clear. I have seen debates where there were some people where the the issue was very close, 
and there have been members of Congress who show up on the floor not quite sure where they're going to come down. And I've mm-hmm. been that way. But that would not be on something like the health care bill. That would be on something more minor than that and where you don't have a lot of information uh, and you, you just have to listen. But on no big bill will it, will it ever be that way. Yeah, I was looking uh, up some history on this, and, and the argument was made that there are so many bills being brought before congressmen that they may not actually know what's in it, and the debate that's presented in the chamber actually tells them things they didn't know, and in that case, they might change their mind, or they might be persuaded to vote for one side or the yeah, other. Yeah, I, I think that happens sometimes, but also remember uh, that before I ever went down to the to the House floor, uh, I, you know, I had a staff that was working on all these things, so I, I never went down there without having been briefed. I mean, now there were times when the whatever side was in the majority. In my case, it was never us, but the side that was in the majority would bring a bill to the floor that actually you've never seen, <laughs> and you didn't get a chance to read it before it was brought forth for a vote. But uh, on most of the occasions, John, when you go to the floor. You, you've had a meeting. I had every Monday morning, I would have a meeting with my legislative staff and, and a number of different legislative assistants who, in the areas that they covered, would fill me in at least this is the bill, who, here's who's for it, who's against it, here's what it would cost, here's what it would do, here's the argument against it, and so forth. And, and so you, don't, you almost never go to the floor without some ideas, but, but sometimes the argument is very close. You know, there are bills that you don't know a lot about. Every member of Congress, John, is a generalist. You know, you may be a writer, as I am. You may be a physician. You may be an electrician. You're something. And there's whole ranges of issues you don't know much about. And so sometimes, you know, let's say it's a high-tech kind of issue, uh, Internet kind of issue. You may show up not really understanding it very well. And then the debate might might actually make a difference, but uh, not ordinarily. It's a little bit heartbreaking because we all, you know, us uh, civilians wanted to kind of be, you know, the Mr. Smith goes to Washington scenes where yeah. where truth is unfolding and persuasion and argument is, is, is proving really powerful in real time in that chamber where, where senators yeah. are bending over their seats. And so it's not. <laughs> uh, oh, you know, John, that's a great example, because actually, if you remember Mr. Smith goes to Washington, uh, as you obviously do. What happened is when uh, the Jimmy Stewart character, Mr. Smith, gives his filibuster and it goes on and on, that is informing not the, not the people in the Senate chamber, you know, but it, it, the people out there who are hearing it on, on the radio uh-huh. and reading right. about it. And then they start writing to their senators, and that's how it did. It wasn't that, he, that there are a lot of senators sitting there and saying, oh, my, we've been wrong all this time. <laughs> it's more that... Uh, you know, he's able to raise the, the specter here. And if you're a senator, you look and say, how am I going to be able to justify voting for this? <laughs> so, you know, and I, th- I think I, I think a lot of our listeners know this, but probably some may not. When you see C-SPAN and you see a representative, you know, at the podium uh, making a speech, making a grand speech that often it's to a nearly empty hall with maybe a few Absolutely. pages around. Have you have you been in that situation? Well, well, sure, but actually, what what has happened? Uh, you know, there at a time when when Newt Gingrich was in the uh, minority and uh, a small minority, and he was, you know, he's kind of a bomb thrower, uh, and he started using this period of time at the end of the 
legislative day, uh, they, what we called special orders, to just hold forth because you could do that and nobody else is there. You're just, you know, maybe a, a few friends and, and you're, you're just speaking to an empty chamber. And Tip O'Neill, seeing that he was using that for political purposes, ordered the cameras to start panning the entire chamber so that the people back back home could see that it was empty. However, you know, it's also true that a lot of the time in the House and the Senate, when those debates are going on and you're watching it, there's not anybody there. You know, what they're doing is laying out for the public and for the record, you know, their their argument. So when we come back to the to the uh, numbers that uh, prompted this conversation, the Times and Washington Post reporting that the Obamacare debate, they say, took place over 25 days, and the Republican Senate health care bill debate uh, was scheduled to get only 20 hours. We're, we're talking about really 25 days of what? Of hearings? Uh, of, of open discussion? As, if it's not, strictly speaking, debate? No, I mean, that's the amount of time that lapsed between the time it was submitted and, and you actually had a bill and it came up. And part of the you know, reason for that was, in that case, it was the Democrats who were doing it, and uh, part of the reason was the Democrats were split. It, it really took Obama and, and his leaders in Congress uh, a while to get to the point where they had enough votes to pass it, uh, because there, there were people in his party who weren't ready to go along. And so it took a while to craft it. Now, I must say that I think that process is a much better process to let it drag out. I, one of the things that bothers me a lot, John, is the, the impatience that a lot of people, in, in, not only in the public generally, but you know, in the media and other you know, I used to joke about this in speeches. I'd say, oh, well, you know, we're, we're trying to uh, build up the greatest military in the history of the world in order to defend us against, you know, the Soviet empire with all of its weapons and all that. And, and the press is saying, oh, it's been four days and they haven't solved it yet. <laughs> it's, uh, mm-hmm. uh, so now I, I think a long, prolonged process of deliberation, of compromise, uh, you know, is a good thing. Rushing, rushing some things through is bad, and so, and and it should be as open as possible. The public should see what's going on. So, even though I am very well aware that the Democrats used to do this to the Republicans, so so their complaints about it, Schumer's complaints, all really sound a little hollow to me because they used to do it to us all the time. But the fact of the matter is, both sides are wrong, and right now, the debate should be open. Uh, the hearings should be open. This all should be done in the public. Now, sometimes when you try to reach your compromises, you have to do that behind closed doors, because otherwise people are watching to see, oh, are you selling out? You know, and it makes it very hard to reach compromise you know, when everything is out in the open. But there ought to be a lot more in the open than there is here. Doing, doing this all behind closed doors is too much. And, and so, Mickey, you're saying the Democrats played some of the same game back oh, in your period, which was the, the 70s through the early 90s. Um, but d- in some sense, I also think you feel it was a better time for the process it, back look, then. It was. So, um, yes, Democrats did it, too. The example that I, I've mentioned is before. Not, when I was on the House Budget Committee uh, and we were – talking about supposedly debating, uh, deliberating over uh, the federal budget. Uh, at one point, the uh, Democrats said, okay, we're going to have a recess, 
and all the Democrats went off separately for a long time. Uh, and then they came back, they were off in a separate room, uh, and came back later, uh, after quite a bit of time had passed and said, okay, we've worked it out. Here's what we're doing. Here's the budget. And they, you would let's have the vote. And they did it. They forced it through. So that has happened. Uh, both sides have done it. But the thing that I am, look back at as a, as a golden age was when Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House. And, you know, he's a liberal Democrat, and I'm a Republican, and we didn't agree on very much. But during the time of the debates over what to do about Central America, the Reagan administration was very strongly supporting the rebels who were fighting against the government in Nicaragua, uh, which was close to the Soviets. We had in the House the Boland Amendment, uh, Eddie Boland from Massachusetts, and the Boland Amendment cut off all U.S. support for the uh, Contras, who were the rebels fighting against the Nicaraguan government. Well, I happened to support the position of the Reagan administration, and I offered my own amendment uh, that would sort of counter that, and that would go back and provide money to the Contras. And all of the Democrats were opposed to it, the Democratic leadership opposed, the Speaker strongly opposed, but John, he allowed me to offer the amendment anyway. And we, we had a full discussion on the floor, we, uh, quite a lot of time. Uh, the Speaker, O'Neill, spoke forcefully against my amendment. Most of the Democratic leadership spoke forcefully against my amendment. But, in fact, I got three of the principal Democrats to actually speak in favor of my amendment. And I won. I beat the now, Speaker. Now, did, did you persuade them in that moment, or was that something no, that was... No, no, it had been a process of sitting down, talking to them, saying, look, here's how your constituents are, are, are affected, here's how your constituents feel, uh, here is what the effect is on, on our national security, because the Nicaraguan government you know, has close ties with the Soviets, etc. You know, I made my case, I talked to them over time, uh, and it was what I said, my friends said, and also their constituents caused them to say, okay, we'll support the Edwards Amendment you know, against our own leadership. Now, and I won. Now, that is something that could not happen today. Uh, How come? Well, two things. What, you know, first of all, we have become so partisan. Polarization is not a problem. We're, that's part of democracy. But partisanship, you stick with your team, has gotten so bad that you, I could not imagine three Democratic chairmen standing up and speaking against and voting against their own party leadership. I just cannot imagine it. But it would be a moot point because I can't see the Speaker of the House, in this case Paul Ryan, ever allowing something to come to the floor, you know, that he is strongly opposed to. So, you know, the Democrats say, we, we want to bring something to the floor that's going to completely undo a major Republican policy. You know, there's no way Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell is going to let that happen. So one thing about Tip O'Neill. Uh, he, he was a liberal, a liberal Democrat. I didn't agree with him on much, but he believed in the institution. He believed in the democratic process. He believed in deliberation. And most members of Congress did then. Uh, that's gotten lost now as we're all sworn. You don't know, remember Mitch McConnell saying as soon as Obama was elected, my job is basically to make him a one-term president. Uh, the Republicans now see that the Democrats are, are going to oppose whatever uh, Paul Ryan and the, and the Republicans propose. But this is where we've gotten. And the, the golden age kind of fell through when, when Tip O'Neill retired. 
Jim Wright became speaker, and he started imposing closed rules and wouldn't let people. I never could offer my amendment then. No, they we wouldn't allow Republicans to offer amendments, and it all then it came to Newt Gingrich, who was even more partisan, uh, and it began to unravel at that point. But there was a time, uh, and I lived through it, when Republicans and Democrats could both be full participants in the debate. Uh, the majority would allow the minority to have its say. And that's really the way Congress ought to operate, and it doesn't really operate that way anymore. Mickey, when you debated with us a little while back, you were arguing for the motion, the GOP must seize the center or die. And I want to play a little bit of something that you said then. Let's take a listen to this. I would not suggest that moving to the center means finding some precise magical spot on the 50-yard line of public opinion. But engaging in a rational politics that is within the range of reasonable and thoughtful discourse. A politics that stands for principle, as Ralph and Laura do, but also stands for the principle that self-government, government of the people, works. And that in a nation of 300 million people, that means not just drawing a line in the sand, but fighting for what you believe, make your case, argue for it, get as much as you can and then find the common ground so that we can move together as one people, as one America. Mickey, that almost sounds, could be taken to sound like you're saying that there's too much polarization. But you've already said in this conversation that polarization is not actually the problem. Right. So what, what's so good about polarization, if anything? <laughs> well, there's 320 million of us, and, and we come from all different places. We, we grow up in different circumstances. Uh, you know, economically, culturally, socially, uh, we we have people who believe very strongly in the progressive left's ideas of government. People who believe very strongly in the traditional, more limited form of government. I mean, so in a democracy, you don't have somebody dictating what the results are going to be. You actually, you know, fight it out. You know. So what I was saying, and by by the way, <laughs> in my defense, I want to say this. The the argument I made, remember, as David Brooks and I were taking the side, GOP must seize the center or die. Well, it was you guys who wrote the title of the thing, right? <laughs> and, and so our position was either uh, it's okay for the GOP to stay uh, very hard right Tea Party as they were at that time, or yeah, or not. And so, uh, but I I don't really believe necessarily in the center, uh, and, and the reason is. We, we, the civil rights movement did not come out of the center. You know, there are a lot of things that justice requires that, that won't happen. Uh, but what we should be doing is having these debates about the different positions that people take. I mean, we, we are a large and diverse country. But at the end of the process, find ways to come together, to find a compromise. Compromise is not a dirty word. Compromise is an essential word in a big democracy. Uh, and that is where we should be able to say, John, uh, I understand your concerns. I can give a little here, but I need this. And you can say, well, okay, if you can give that, that's okay. And we're, we do this incrementally. So incrementally, we make progress. You know, you don't get everything you want. I don't lose everything I was afraid of losing. And, and you're able to make sure that the bridges get built and the, uh, the military gets funded and the things that have to get done get done. 
And now we can't do that because people uh, get punished if they compromise. They get taken out in primaries if they uh, show that they're willing to talk to people on the other side. So it's not a matter of the center. It's a matter of the ability to come together at the end of the process and say, okay, where can we find enough common ground to move forward? And that is what partisanship prevents. Polarization is great, you know, fight it out. But at the end, partisanship keeps you from being able to reach a compromise. Really what's happening is kind of discouraging is that there are a lot of people in Congress now where it seems, it seems from the outside, that their party loyalty matters more than their loyalty to their obligations as members of Congress to serve the country. And that, that's a very disturbing thing. Last question. Do you see any way out of this? You know, I have a lot of people, John, who will say to me, you know, number one, you know, I, it's very dismaying, and I think I, I don't see any hope. I don't see any hope for the future. And and usually what they will say is, we've got these people up there. They're not willing to work together. I run a uh, political fellowship program for the Aspen Institute, uh, and the people who have come through my program, Republicans and Democrats alike, uh, people like... Uh, uh, Tom Perez, who's now the Democratic National Chairman, Mike Steele, who was the Republican Chairman, Eric Garcetti, who's the Mayor of Los Angeles, Pete Buttigieg from South Bend, uh, Jason Kander from Missouri, uh, people on the on the Republican side like Mia Love from Utah, and and you know uh, we we've just got Doug Ducey, the Governor of Arizona. We, we've got a lot of really really good people coming up. So if you look past the people who are now the members of Congress, for the most part, and you look to the people who are out there as our mayors and as our state legislators and as our state attorneys general and people who are coming up in the process, there are a lot of very bright, younger political leaders who, I've got over 300 of them in my program, who are, are coming together in a bipartisan way and and trying to restore civility and bipartisanship to to government. And so I look at that, I look at the future, and I say, you know, we've got hope. Now, I personally, this is my own personal bias, I think until we change the political party system, you know, that's my own thing, until we change that, it's going to be hard. Uh, But there's some good people coming up, John. Well, I hope we can get some of them on the Intelligence Squared stage at some point. Yeah, me too. Mickey Edwards, thanks so much. This has been fantastic. Thanks, John. Great to talk to you. Well, I learned some things listening to Mickey just then, and I hope you did as well. And by the way, if you liked what you just heard, tell us. And if you have ideas for how we can keep going this way and talking at greater length with our debaters or discussing the state of national discourse overall with them, send those ideas along too. One other thing, don't forget that Intelligence Squared U.S. depends on financial support from people like you who like what we do. Please consider making a donation of whatever size by going to our website, iq2us.org, or by using your phone to text the word DEBATE to the number 797979. I would appreciate it. And so will the rest of our team, which goes like this. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Clea Chang is chief operating officer. Leah Mathau is vice president of programming. Jeannie Park is director of editorial operations. Rob Christensen is our podcast producer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.